Hello, workplace wellness champions. Welcome to episode seven of the Virtual Vibe podcast, where we discuss HR strategies for a happy, healthy, and connected workforce in a work from home world. I'm David Howe. I'm the CEO at Bright Breaks and the host of the Virtual Vibe podcast. And today I'm really excited to chat with Doug Zay. Doug is the former chief people officer at a company called Quility Insurance. He's now a workplace wellness consultant, and he is an all-around student of workplace health and wellness. So welcome, Doug. Thank you so much, Dave. I'm so grateful and excited to be here with you. Thank you. Me too. I appreciate it. So today, Doug and I are going to do a little bit different format than the previous podcast. We're actually going to discuss the concept of a book and some of the lessons in that book. So this book is called Love and Work, and the author is Marcus Buckingham. We're going to dig into some of the themes of this book, some of the lessons that we can apply to the workplace, both as an individual employee, but also as a a leader in HR or, or people teams. And we're going to look at how people can discover what they love to do and why companies should care about that. We're going to look at a concept called red threads and how that can help in career development, both for uh, personally, but also as an HR leader. And then we're going to look at how the lessons and the perspectives of love and work can help in leading a team, uh, specifically in a virtual work environment. So I'm really excited to dig into these concepts. Doug and I have spent the last few weeks having chats, talking about this book and reading the book, and uh, we're excited to share these with the listeners today. So before we dive into the book, Doug, would love to learn just a little bit about your story and kind of what led you to where you are today. Sure. So I actually began my career, David, many years ago as a behavioral health therapist, um, really, you know, since I was young growing up, had, had always known that that had a strong desire to, to help folks. And so uh, my natural inclination was to, to move into role to, to become a therapist and, you know, did well there, was successful, but found about, oh, 10 years into my career. So really noticed that, that I went through a significant phase of burnout in my career and was just just struggling with the energy and motivation and engagement to kind of to kind of keep at it. And so through that process, uh, thankfully, I, I was connected to the concepts of positive psychology, um, which is really, you know, the simplest way to understand it, I think, is the, the study of happiness. But it really changed my perspective on on people's well-being. When when you're in the world of mental health, you spend a lot of time focused on on illness, and and of course, counseling and therapy has done wonders for people in terms of proving uh, their mental health. But I always felt that that there was a little bit missing, and really resonated with the idea that that it's not just about alleviating suffering; it's about you know helping people connect with and understand what it means to live a happy and f- fulfilling life. So that took me on a journey. Um, as I really started to kind of connect with that work, that took me on a journey to really just start to look up and look around and, and notice that that I wasn't the only one in the clinic that I was working at that was really struggling uh, with burnout, with their own mental health, with with compassion fatigue and the challenges of taking care of folks. So on kind of my own accord, I, I just started developing workshops, training, started working with the doctors and nurses. And really just started diving into this concept of, of what does it not mean to just be healthy and happy, but what does it mean to be healthy and happy at work? You know, the place where, where we spend as adults in this world, a, a large majority of our time, you know, through the ages of 20 to 60 or 65 or so uh, at our workplace. And it is a hugely integral part of our overall health, happiness and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have 
what I find is a really interesting journey and I think touches on some of the concepts we're going to talk about, but you, you know, you started off there, but then you, you know, went into operations and then you were a chief people officer, which is a pretty stark contrast for a lot of people. So how did that happen? Like, what did that look like? Yeah, well, it it was kind of through that journey of really connecting with that work and and just seeing the impact that the overall impact it made, not just on people's, you know, enjoyment at work, their, their, productivity, those things, but just, just that overall picture. So that uh, led me, oddly enough, into the world of, of life insurance. And, and the primary reason that was is there, there was an opportunity to take this work and really apply it in, in a new setting, in a corporate setting, and in a way where I could really learn and understand what it meant for these concepts and tools in terms of scaling a business. Throughout history, HR has kind of been been a supportive function in, in a lot of businesses, and I really had the opportunity through through the work in people operations to to understand and see the impact that that not only this had on the employees' well being, but the growth and the overall ability of the company to achieve results. So that led me jumping over into into the world of life insurance and and being able to really scale this teaching and this concept up. So while while I was there, I think we scaled from 35 to to over 200 employees and our independent contractor network from about 1,000 to to over 5,000. So it was a really unique experience of not just doing this work, but seeing how it worked to support the growth of the company. Yeah. That's pretty huge growth in terms of number of folks working with the organization. And yeah, I, I had a chat with someone else recently around positive psychology, and I and and you touched on that as kind of an early study theme of yours. And you, you know, said this in a different, slightly different way, but you know, she had described it as wanting people to really thrive. So it's not just mm-hmm. enough to kind of be baseline, but helping people really thriving in their work and how that is possible for folks. And I think that's some of the stuff we're going to talk about today in in uh, the book. So. So before we kind of go into, I guess, some specifics of the book, can you kind of give a higher level overview of what is this book, Love and Work, and who is Marcus Buckingham? Sure. Yeah, I, I came, uh, a gr- good friend of mine uh, recommended Marcus's book after seeing him speak, speak at a conference. And so there's a few books in my life that I've read where, you know, you get finished with it and, and the aha moments and the light bulbs that have gone on. And it's just this perspective and understanding of like, oh, my gosh. There's so much opportunity in how we help people engage with their work in a different way than I ever really thought about. So Marcus is, is a longtime researcher. He was a co-founder of the Strengths Finder uh, with Don Clifton. He was a researcher at Gallup. He broke out on his own. He has multiple bestsellers, including uh, Love and Work. So he really has been focused on the concepts and ideas around what does it mean to create an engaged, resilient workforce that is also high performing and has great retention and all the things from a, from a people perspective that we're really after. Right. You know, how would you describe the, I guess, the core thesis? So is it all around kind of helping build that resilient and engaged workforce? I know a, a big piece of it is, and really interesting to me, is helping folks kind of uncover what they love and, and how we have some interesting stories around that. But how would you describe in a, in a really quick kind of thesis of the, the entire book? Yeah, I think it really is the perspective that when you can help people really connect with the things that they're naturally drawn to in this world through their work, that ultimately, through that process, the the issues that we typically deal with of engagement and, and productivity tend to resolve themselves because once people are really able to understand 
what they love. And, and as we've talked about, David, it's not, not a word you hear a lot in the business world, love. Um, but I think it's, it's so fitting because it indicates something that comes naturally rather, rather than forced. And so it's really about helping people understand not just why are they doing what they're doing, but what, what is it specifically every day that they're drawn to that seems to naturally click for them, that they look forward to doing, that they instinctively volunteer for, you know, the thing that, that they're going to do first thing in the day when they get there versus the things they're going to push off to the end of the day or end of the week. So it's really helping people just kind of hone in. And the concept he uses in the book, which is kind of the central theme, is this idea of red threads. The idea that we have these things that are we're able to kind of connect with that are already woven through our lives. And it's a matter of really identifying those and learning to amplify them over time so that they really take on more of a substantial component of your daily work. Yeah, I think we all probably can connect to what you said there, which is what are the things that we wake up and are looking forward to right away? And what are the things that were maybe not so much? And I, you know, one of the things you and I have talked about before is you come in and you have a to-do list of five things. Mm. What is that thing you're, you're tackling right away? And what is that thing you're kind of delaying and may, maybe not even doesn't get done that day? And that's one way to kind of start to uncover what are those loves and what are those things also, you know, I, I love the looking at the opposite end of that. What are those things that you're, you're not in love with and how can you find ways to maybe spend less time on that? But I guess the big question that listeners might have is, you know, so helping people uncover their loves and why, you know, I'm curious, I guess, is there, why is that important to the business? But then on top of that, where do we start, right? So how do we actually, what are the, what are the areas we should look at? Should we start to peel back? What is those, those red, those red threads, or, or should we kind of take a step back and, you know, look at why should businesses actually care about this? Why should businesses care that their team are uncovering what they love? Sure. I mean, I think I think it's it's both. Um, you know, there's there's obviously unique benefit to to the employee, but there's there's huge overall benefit to the organization. You know, there's a concept from Jim Collins of, of right people, right people, right seats. And you know, I think that, that that we would be fooling ourselves if we thought that just simply through through an engagement interview process, you know, that that we are going to completely know a person well enough coming through the doors, or that they're going to know themselves well enough to really know those things that they're going to allow them to make the greatest contribution to the organization. And so the foundation of Red Threads is not just about helping them identify what they love. It's through helping them identify what they love to do that you maximize their contribution to the organization. And so as I've started this work, it, to, to me, it always starts with, with conversation, with, with education, with really starting to just get people to open up to the idea because I think a lot of this work can go against the grain of, of the way people might have traditionally thought about uh, in, engaging in their work. So I think there's the initial opportunity is just to bring some light to the subject and, and really help people start to open up to the idea. Because if you're a person that says, well, there's nothing that I look forward to on Monday morning, then I can pretty much assume you're burnout and not being as productive as you can. There's old saying that, that people find themselves that they're going to be in a position where they work hard enough not to get fired and get paid just enough not to quit. So, you know, I think that's that's a real challenge and an issue. And, you know, as we've gone through the pandemic and we people have had 
so many new experiences in their lives and, and including being quarantined and isolated and then coming back out into the world. There's, I think, a, maybe there were a hangover from that experience where people are really struggling at this point in time to understand what it means to get that sense of engagement and fulfillment from from their work. And, and I know I experienced it on, on the people side. It, it was a challenge for, for a while in terms of, you know, finding and bringing in good talent because people were just relating differently to their work. And as I think we continue to introduce new generations into the workforce, the the notion that the school system or whatever it might be had has produced somebody that knows what they love to do. I think that that's one of the biggest myths that, that we've got to look at and step back from and recognize that people go through that journey, I think, with a lot of things culturally and, and from their families that they really learned about what work is and how they're supposed to approach it, that it's imperative for, for people within the people functions and organizations to be able to engage people at this level and to be able to help them understand, not solely through education, that's, a, that's an important part, but the cool part of this, David, is the raw data, everything you need to know about what you love to do, it's already here. It's a matter of kind of peeling away some of those belief systems that we've developed throughout our lives so we can actually access that. And for a lot of people, that includes taking a, a new perspective on their work, on the degrees they might have had. And so there's, there's a lot of inherent resistance or challenge that, that can exist in this process for people. Mm. Right. And you said the belief systems. And my guess is that some of those belief systems are you know, work isn't something that's really meant to be enjoyable, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're that person or you're managing that person, you know, how do you help maybe unveil that the lesson in that or the insight that, hey, work can actually be something you do love to do. And, and that may, again, that may seem like an odd concept to many, I'm sure. So mm -hmm. where do you, where do you start and, and how do you in practice kind of help someone develop that new belief system? Sure. So, you know, the, the simplest way, like I said, is to start a conversation. I, I would encourage everybody that the most effective way is to work on yourself first. Lived experience is the most powerful thing we have at our disposal in terms of helping another person. And if, if we've done this work, if we've really gone through the process of understanding what drives us and what, how our love aligns with our work, we're going to be much more effective in helping that other person. But the cool news is, it's really simple to get started. And what I recommended to everybody uh, in the organization was they simply took a piece of paper. And throughout the week, at the end of each day or throughout each day, they put a line down the middle and they had a column on one side that says loves and the column on the other side that said loathes. And all they did was simply track throughout their week. What were the things that I loved? And, and again, to be clear about love, there's things that you're naturally drawn towards, things that you tend to get easily, things, this is an important one, things that create flow or make time go by quickly. Uh, I, I know I've been in several jobs in my life where I was watching the clock and waiting for the end of the day, and uh, that is no way to go about it. So you're naturally experiencing time speeding up. When you're done, you get a sense of accomplishment. And you look forward to doing that activity again. And so you have people start answering those questions. You simply have them go through their day. The key to this, David, and what I've learned is the benefit is in the details. People tend to be too high level when they're looking at this stuff. And they miss the nuance 
that helps them understand really how skills are or, or the work that they're doing has many different component parts and being able to kind of break those component parts down to understand, well, I actually love doing work with data and painting a picture, but I don't actually love putting together financial analysis or things with, with numbers on that side. And so even within a certain function, you might look at this and say, wow, this person really lights up over here. They're the only ones that can tell you that. They're the only ones that can provide you that information. They're the only ones that know what that internal experience feels like. But as you said, if they're like me, I grew up with the belief system and with my parents' modeling. And I think a lot of folks did for, for, from kind of the baby boomer generation where you show up, you go to work, you get paid, you hope you make it to 65, you retire, and then you get to enjoy your life and then you get to have fun. So it's as simple as saying, just start the conversation and start encouraging people to track those things. And so the goal with this red thread we talked to, uh, we talked about is you don't need an entire red quilt. It's not realistic that a person's going to have a hundred percent of their career be full of things they love. The target is about twenty percent of the day where people feel like they're able to play to their strengths and able to do things that give them that feeling I was describing. Mm. So is there, as part of the book, is the 20% number kind of based on some research in that if someone can unlock spending 20% of their time doing those things that they love, that kind of is the key baseline, at least, to get to a spot where something like burnout is less likely? Is that is that true? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, the, the entire foundation of this book. I mean, he was a Gallup researcher. You know, we're talking about tens of thousands of participants across multiple industries, uh, multiple countries. Uh, the research is available out there. If anybody's like me and, and geeks out on research, you can go find it and read it. But it, it's all backed up, not just conceptually or theoretically, but by really saying the people that have this experience, that meet this baseline of 20%, it produces greater engagement, greater resilience, greater overall satisfaction and fulfillment from their work. So it really bears out in the research and not just a snapshot, but but over time. Yeah. I love simple takeaways. And right away, you're saying, hey, create that simple list, whether that's for you personally or for folks that you're managing, help to uncover what you love, what you don't love necessarily. Do you have any examples of that from your experience as a manager in employees kind of going through a similar exercise and really helping uncover what they do love and what that translated to in terms of their role or their their happiness and all that? Absolutely. Yeah. Many wonderful examples of folks, but there's a couple that, that stand out to me. You know, foundationally, I think encourage people always to remember that value alignment is key, you know, making sure that the person is able to demonstrate and that they're in line with the values of the organization. And of course, on the other side, work ethic, determination, you know, some qualities that you're going to want people to bring to the table. That's kind of the ticket, ticket to the game, so to speak. But after that, it was really a matter of, you know, I had great folks in the organization and, and one person in particular started off and was doing data processing, was actually doing telemarketing on the phone, which is one of the hardest jobs I've discovered to keep anybody in more than six months. But through that really just had a group of actually three, three guys. That, that were in that function, decided to wind that function down, but we knew that they aligned with the organization. We knew they aligned with the value system. And so just started the conversation about what do they love? What do they want to do? And so he actually made a jump into our contracting team, which is a lot of data entry and processing work. 
and he learned a lot and he was really proficient at it, but he wasn't fulfilled. And so through conversation, through talking about it, he's like, you know what, when I get a chance to do a project where I'm analyzing data or I'm pulling together information about how the team is functioning, I noticed that I really light up. And so through this conversation, really just had the opportunity to say, okay, and this is one of the keys to this is when you help somebody discover kind of their loves. And if it happens to be outside of their current job function, I will say that I would not encourage people to assume if you start this work, everybody in your entire organization is going to want to change jobs. That was not my experience at all. And in fact, a vast majority of people wanted to stay in what they were doing in just a little bit of a, a nuanced way. But this person, in fact, you know, because they had gone through and they had a background in history, you know, things where they just weren't really sure what they wanted to do, just discovered that there was a love through telling stories with data. And so provided that person an opportunity to simply experiment. Okay, here's a couple projects. So let's see how you do. Let's see the work you're able to produce. And understanding this person didn't have the education training, the traditional background of a data scientist in any way, shape or form, but he loved it. And so he got those things on his own. He just went out and sought them, watched videos online, read book, took that opportunity because he was driven internally through that intrinsic motivation. And so was able to make that shift, not only to, to moving to the business intelligence team, but the organization was actually able to support him in going back to graduate school to get his master's degree in, in, in data science. And through that, he was able to, to not only bring tremendous value and contribution to the organization, he actually was able to elevate and became the director of the entire business intelligence unit at, at the company. And if you talk to his bosses and the folks that were working with him, accountability and engagement were never issues. He simply gave him clear expectations, made sure he knew what he needed to deliver, and then you set him free. And in typically much faster than you would anticipate would come back with the work because they're excited and engaged and motivated to do it. Yeah. Wow. And it makes so much sense. Somebody who may be spending time on their own time, studying, researching, learning because they want to, clearly that's going to translate into them, you know, having more happiness and fulfillment at work and probably more productivity and all that. So I think it's a really good story. And I guess it's the lesson in there you know, helping, helping folks uncover, as you said, what they do love and what they don't love, but then experimenting if they, if something that they do love doing, like is, is the lesson to help uncover that and then run small experiments with folks to try to uncover maybe things that they don't even know a are possible for them to do. Because if you're in the telemarketing or call center, it might seem a really far stretch to go over here and then start looking at data and helping tell stories through that. So what's the advice for managers there and helping uncover that for their teams? Yeah, you know, it's obviously a pretty big risk to simply say, oh, I think I would love to do that. Can I go do that? Can I go do that job? So you're really, you know, through this process of experimentation, you're able to uncover a couple of things. Really, you're able to help that person learn, is the thing I think I'm going to love to do actually a thing I love to do? Human beings are kind of notorious at being poor predictors of our future happiness and the conditions that are going to create that. And so you want to give them a chance. You want to see. The second thing is, as, as a business owner within the organization, I'm going to want to see, can this person actually do the work that they need to do? Are there competency gaps? Are there things that we're going to need to kind of backfill with training? And in this case, yes, there was. But because 
of through this process, it wasn't just about identifying loves. It was about translating those loves into a growth track, into a growth trajectory in the organization. So you start there, you give people a chance to, to play around with it in a controlled way that's not going to cause them too much harm. And we were clear, it's this is in addition to your work, right? And and I also want to be clear that he was an extremely high performer in the role that he was in. And the manager that was supervising at that point did not did not want to lose him. And so there's a lot of different variables at play and a lot of different feelings and, and emotions. So it was about identifying that. But in the same breath, it was about identifying the talent resources on the team. Because the reality was, if he didn't make a change, he was going to be gone eventually. That was the reality. You know, he never said it, but but in those circumstances, when you're connecting with people, you just kind of get that sense that like, this is where he's headed. And if we don't support him, we're not only going to lose a great person, but somebody who has the, the ability to contribute at an extremely high level differently than they are now. So to backfill that, went through the same process within the team, which is who are those people in the team that actually raise their hand when you say, who loves to do this? And through that, identified another person who was pretty reserved, not somebody who typically is going to kind of speak up a lot, but through this type of engagement, just saw that from this other person. And so not only were they able to backfill the role successfully to allow this person to move, they were able to do it in a way that they've got somebody who is actually much more in line with that work and their growth trajectory was within that job, not having feeling like they had to jump somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And and you're probably right. Give it give it six months, give it twelve months, eighteen months, that person probably wouldn't have stuck around had they stayed in their existing position because it wouldn't have been fulfilling and and it would have just led to that, even if they are a high performer, you know, ultimately it probably would have led to them leaving. And you mentioned the 20% number. So it doesn't need to be that, that zero to a hundred change. It can be a, a zero to, you know, five, 10, and then eventually working towards 20%. Well, what I found honestly is that when you start this conversation with people that, that in, in, in the human brain and, and the way we function, bad is stronger than good, right? And so if you're in a role and you're kind of burnt, you're struggling, and you're not really feeling like you're aligned with it, your attention is going to be focused on what you don't like, and that's just human nature. What I found is actually just simply through starting this conversation, people get an immediate uptick by saying, oh, maybe it's only 3% of what I get to do now, but my job, my work is not devoid of my love. And so when they just start to get the glimpse into that and the doors cracked open and say, oh, this is actually here, and I'm going to start to use this as a guidepost. And then the language Marcus uses, which I love, which is helping people understand that it's not just about climbing a ladder within your career. You know, I've seen a lot of people climb a ladder and end up in extremely high paid positions and they're miserable because they don't enjoy the work. It's more like a scavenger hunt. And it's more like this idea that you're encouraging them just to be curious, to be open and go through the day in a way that they're on the lookout for these types of activities. It's not just limited to their work life, honestly, that people's entire life is a tapestry. And so they can get other information from things maybe they had a job 20 years ago or 10 years ago that they love. Or maybe there's a hobby. You know, there's a lot of raw data and resource for people to pay attention to. But you're exactly right that through that conversation, you start to help people just tick that number up. And what you'll see is there's tasks shifting around within teams. There's 
you know, supportive components that, that occur, but you can't go from zero to a hundred. And I think that's one of the big tenets of this book is it's not about finding a job you love and that's going to solve the problem. It's finding the love in the work that you're doing. Hmm. And how important is it to uncover these things earlier in your career versus say later in your career? Is there a material difference? Does it matter if all of a sudden you're 55 and you start to run these experiments? You know, I'd imagine that there's clearly a benefit to uncovering it earlier, but is it, is it almost too late for some people or, or can they, should they still go through these exercises? It is never too late. You know, that's a great question because I think that the challenge is not that it's not a possibility and not that people can't really connect with the work that they love. It's that there's a lot of resistance. The more time, energy, and effort we've spent in building a specific career path. So I think that would be my experience that people, people have feel like that they're going to have to have to sacrifice income or they're going to have to sacrifice things that they've worked hard to gain over the years. And so it, it's a, I think a different conversation and a little bit different approach for folks. But I, I can say that, that within the work I was doing, there were people that were in their fifties that I was having these conversations with. There were people in those roles that actually made shifts within the organization. Not because the, the, and not, not monumental, but they were able to just to continue those shifts over time where they found themselves further and further connected and into a role that lit them up. So absolutely, it's never, never too late unless you believe it's too late. Right. And I guess that's a question that I have is, so is it too late? No. The concept of, you know, climbing the corporate ladder. Are there other myths, beliefs? things that are kind of embedded in our culture and the way that we think that are worth thinking about and maybe questioning or challenging? Yeah. So, you know, one of my, one of the most important ones that I alluded to was a common cultural belief that, that we're provided. Is, and I think the saying is, if you find a job that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And that comes from the belief that, that if the why is strong enough, right, if the why of what you do is strong enough, it can overcome the what. And what Marcus research really shows is that that's not true. Um, and in fact, the two, there's two professions with the highest rates of burnout, and those are doctors and nurses and teachers. So we could, I'm sure, spend a lot of podcasts talking about why that might be. But the reality is those are two of the, the functions with the most salient whys. But the reality is that why is not enough to overcome how they're spending the job, how they're spending their time every day or how they're having to go about trying to accomplish their work. So it's really encouraging people to kind of step back from that and understand the other really important thing is if you, through survey results, uh, Marcus Table discovered that 78% of people believe that they have the ability to adjust their work in order to fit their loves and strengths better. But only about 18% of people report that they feel engaged in work and that they're able to use their strengths every day. So that's what we call an attitude behavior consistency problem. People out there believe they have the ability to craft their work, but they don't actually spend their time doing it. And so there's such opportunity within that say, well, if you don't believe it's possible, you're 100% right every time because you're never going to start the conversation. You're never going to go to your boss and say, hey, there's this thing that I've been looking at. I just I really, really think I would enjoy it. And I think I could be really good at it. 
a couple other stories that we had somebody move from our lead generation team, high performer, into becoming a copywriter within the organization. The favorite one I have is we actually have somebody that was uh, in the telemarketing team and just by happenstance saw that he made, he was a semi-professional BMX rider <laughs> and saw that he made awesome BMX videos online. <laughs> And we needed somebody to move into our videography team. And it was just like, hey, we, we even asked him. We said, hey, we saw you make great videos. You want to give it a try? And he's, he's there. He's there and thriving today. So we butt up against our belief systems every day in, in terms of how we make decisions. And engaging in this challenges those belief systems, challenges you to kind of take a step and a look at that. The cool thing is, Dave, and what I've experienced is people's ability to move through burnout through this work is not six months or a year. It can really start to take root in a matter of weeks. But we've kind of got to get out of our own way and really be able to say, what if this is true? What if I actually can craft and create something meaningful for myself? Yeah. Just a story on our team, our CTO, so our chief technology officer, his name's Kieran. He had a background in theater and owning a theater and, and kind of producing shows and eventually moved into technology and, and software development. And then is now my co-founder at, at Bright Breaks, but also um, our CTO. But he was always kind of drawn to the, the theater side as well. And where we produce content, you know, he was intrigued to kind of spend time in the content side of the business and helping produce some of the, the breaks that we produce. But he did have hesitation. His hesitation was that people are going to see him as the tech guy and not necessarily he didn't say this, but re not respect his opinion or, or all of that. So how, you know, if you're Kieran, which he has overcome now, but how, you know, and I think for me, it was literally like, hey, run for it, run with it, right? You want to do this? This is, you're drawn to it. I think you could be great at it. Go do it. But he did have that hidden hesitation, right? To say, I'm just the tech guy or whatever. So how do you, what, what advice do you have for that type of person who is drawn to videography, but is, you know, working in the call center or whatever, right? Where do they, where do they start? And maybe more actionable too is, and we already touched on this a little bit, but I think it's worth saying is like, what can that manager do to help that person go experiment and go do spend time in that area? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's in, in part of the skill. I think that, that, that now in, in, in the world of people operations is, is so necessary is my recommendation is you go straight at it. You know, we all kind of keep up, keep these walls of self-preservation up where we're just, you know, and we're, we're afraid to try new things or we're afraid we're going to fall on our face and that we're going to fail. So I think from that perspective that, that we have the opportunity to say, hey, we're, we're here to support you and we're here to give you an opportunity to try something within the organization. Here are the parameters around kind of what you're going to try and, and how you're going to try it. But ultimately, what I've experienced, and I'm sure you have, is I can give people as much permission as I want to try that. But the key is they've got to give themselves that permission. They've got to give themselves permission to not be an expert right away, to not have all the answers, to really enter something which is very challenging for a lot of people. And, and they feel exposed and vulnerable when they're stepping in and learning and, and trying something new. So I think a lot of that goes, you know, obviously, depending on the culture of the organization you're with, if it's not one that values trying things, you know, then, then there might be some additional hurdles people are looking at that they're going to have to kind of address from, from an organizational perspective. But I encourage folks just to go right at it and just to call that out and say, 
here's what I see. Here's what I see you saying. Here's where I think there's an opportunity for you to give yourself a chance and you give yourself permission to, to jump out there in the world, but also understanding we're not going to twist anybody's arm. And ultimately, they're the person that's going to kind of have to make that call and come with that willingness to, to put themselves out there in that way. And that's a challenge for folks, for sure. Right. And it's not like everyone's going to make these jump, huge jumps in what they do, of course, but it does to me speak to the importance, and you touched on this, is hiring for values early on because somebody might change roles, their skill sets might be used in different ways, but those values, and you kind of touched on just the core of it, you have to you know work hard and forget what else you said, but there was, there was two there. Mm-hmm. But is that a piece of the thinking in that you know, values really aren't going to change your own intrinsic internal values, um, but the skill sets might. So the importance of hiring for skills, obviously, but values to me are kind of the baseline. Those have to match because if they don't, even if you change roles, those values kind of carry with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, values and, and ideally they, they should be. I mean, I, I think there's nuance we all experience, especially as we go through life and have, have new life experiences. But you know, and that's what I say. Values are values are not necessary. I mean, values are determined by the organization, but how people engage with and demonstrate those values is unique to them. And so much of Marcus's work and so much of the work in this book is like everybody is unique. You have a a billion synapses in your brain, or a, a billion neural cells in your brain, and a trillion synapses. And so the reality is, there is not a person like you, nor will there ever be another David Howe on this planet. You are completely and totally unique unto yourself based on your genetics and your life experience. And so within this, especially now that we look at a lot of these systems and the things that, that are still in place in so many organizations, David, they, they come out of antiquated ways of thinking about how people engage with their work. So much of what we still have in place was born out of the industrial revolution, was born out of the concept that you want a bunch of people who look and do their work the exact same way. Maybe they're running a machine, maybe there's manufacturing, right? And you want that consistency so you know that everybody's doing everything in the exact same way. In the world of knowledge work, I have certainly discovered this. (laughs) There are many different ways to be successful and go about uh, accomplishing something and, and getting work done. And so for the manager, that's a big thing to look at. And and for them to say, I've I've got to have the opportunity to be open to somebody new coming in, to somebody trying something a different way, to somebody kind of leading with their loves to help us take a bigger look at or or more effective look at how things are set up and how they're working within the organization. Yeah, I'm I'm inspired by this. It makes a lot of sense. And it's making me rethink how, you know, I work with my team a little bit and you know, because like you're saying, if it doesn't need to be 100%, I think that's the biggest thing I'm keep, keep coming back to. It can be a small chunk of, if you think of 20% as one day a week or whatever that is, it's actually going to make that other 80% a whole lot more productive, a whole lot more happy, a whole lot more engaging for the individual, which is obviously good for the business. So you might be getting 100% of somebody's time, but if it's 100% of things that they don't like, the productivity engagement's not going to be as high as if you just spent a little bit more time focusing on things that you do. So yeah, I'm walking away feeling really inspired to ask these questions to my team. So relevant to our audience, Doug, obviously is doing all this, but doing it in a, in a virtual work environment, right? And um, that's where this podcast focuses on. So how can, you know, leaders, how can individuals think about applying these concepts in a, in a virtual uh, work environment? Yeah. So I was applying this work. We had said about 200 employees spread, spread across 30 states within the United States. We did have a core kind of 
close to the home office, but a vast majority of the teams were virtual um, other than maybe, you know, a handful of times, times a year. And so, you know, the way I approach this work in terms of how I started with training, you know, we had a core group uh, of managers and we started with just providing information and training. We started helping them look at from their own perspective, how, how do they really engage with work? How do they open themselves up to the idea of red threads and how do they start to look at that? So provided the training and information and, you know, just kind of gauged where, where people were at with with this work. But, you know, as I've always done, my typical approach is I'm going to find some champions. I'm going to find some people out there where they're just engaged with the training. They're fired up. They're saying, hallelujah, I've been waiting for this, uh, for these concepts to come into my life. I've never heard of such a thing, but I'm fired up. So took those, right? And took those people and really said, okay, let's work with the managers and let's have them set up some structure, supportive structure around doing the work of love and work. And so what that would look like is there's a couple, a couple of things that are really important in this. Obviously, virtually face-to-face time, you know, is, is key. And I think there's a lot of organizations out there, you know, that, that struggle with, you know, if we are virtual, are you on camera? Are you off camera? Do we allow you to choose? Do we make you be on camera? Like, what are the rules? So you foundationally have to decide what are your rules? Um, what, what are your expectations for how people are going to show up uh, within that? And I think that's important. I would say we were not 100% successful, but our, our, our general policy was if you can be on camera, be on camera so people can see you and you can see them. But we started with simply bringing these conversations into the team. There's a great exercise uh, Marcus has out there. And I forgot to mention this, but if you do buy the book, he's got a free online course you can register for. All you got to do is send proof of purchase of the book and it gives you a ton of resources. But all we did was train the manager and have the manager start a conversation with their team, basically saying, asking all those questions in a group format. What are the things that fill you up? What are you naturally inclined to do? What are you volunteering for? What is the first thing you're looking forward to doing? What are the things you push off to the side of your desk? And through that conversation, they learned so much about one another that they had never even talked about or even had an inkling to talk about. So it was really about kind of initiating the conversation, providing the training. And then what you start to notice is when people engage in conversation at this level, which is about work, but more about how they experience work, natural bonds start to form in different ways. People learn something or have a commonality with somebody or learn, oh my God, I struggle with this. And now I know I have a resource. I have somebody who loves this that I can bounce ideas off or or get some advice or feedback from. So just having the conversation really started to change change the team dynamics. And so it wasn't just having the conversation. We actually did pulse surveys along the way. So we said, okay, eight questions that, that if you go out there, I probably can't recite them off the top of my head, but if you go out there, Marcus has got eight simple questions that that measure both he calls it the best of me and the best of we. So the best of my engagement, which is four questions, and the best of we, which is the best of my experience of the team. And we just asked people to rate that. And then through applying this work, went back three months later and measured, do you feel like you're able to use your strengths more? Do you feel more connected to your teammates? Do you feel like fill in the blank? And what we noticed is through simply starting the conversation, people's scores went up. People felt more engaged. They felt more connected. They felt seen in the organization. 
And that alone started that. So my recommendation is if you're not getting in front of your team once a week, face-to-face or virtually face-to-face over Zoom or whatever it might be, you're missing a huge opportunity to have people come together and engage in this work in in a really meaningful way. So is your understanding or advice to be having these types of conversations around around like the concepts of love and work on a weekly basis? Is that something you're doing, as you mentioned, like more you know quarterly or, or, or biannually? How frequent are you actually, am I digging into the folks that I work with to say, hey, what, what fills you up and what doesn't? And having these conversations and measuring the actual responses of them. Yeah, this is one of the most important points from his research. And one of the things I think I experienced the most resistance around because people are busy, but the recommendation is if you have a direct report, you need to be having a one-on-one meeting with that direct report every week, 52 weeks a year. And so a lot of people come up and they're like, oh God, what am I going to talk about? Or they, they feel stressed. They're like, I've got to offer some great sage wisdom or advice or whatever it might be. But what the research really says is, number one, these don't actually have to be face-to-face. My, rec- my personal recommendation that doesn't come from markets is that at least Twice a month, they're face-to-face. They're able to look the other person in the eye. But with Slack and Teams and all these technologies out there, we did we set people up where they were able to simply just check in virtually, send a reminder to the team member. They filled out a form. But in that interaction, and here's the beauty, you're asking that person four questions during that, and they're preparing four questions to come. My typical experience of these one-on-ones is they lasted about 15 minutes. If there was more to discuss, they might last about 30 minutes. So they're not a huge amount of time. I think I had eight direct reports. So I needed to partition off an hour and a half of my week, which is not a challenge in order, order to have these, have these conversations. So in that, you're asking four simple questions, which is what were the activities you loved last week? What were the activities you loathed last week? What are your priorities for this week? And what do you need from me to accomplish your best? So it's a really straightforward way. It kind of peels back this idea that that I've got to, we've got to dig into all this stuff and, you know, it's got to be a, a meeting of challenge or trying to bring issues to the surface. All it does create space, creates a supportive environment. And what I found in doing this work is that people naturally would bring those things up, naturally bring things to challenge with, but they would also get invigorated. They would also have the experience of like, gosh, spending time every week talking about what I love and what lights me up, I was able to see things and able to make changes in the structure or, or the who was doing what within the team in order to allow them to be more aligned. But as Marcus says, we the leadership industry, I think, is a, a, a multi-billion dollar worldwide industry right now. But from his perspective and from love and work perspective, this is leadership. And one of the, the concepts I love, David, that, that he really leans into that that I have guided so much of how I interact with people is people need attention, not feedback. And I think that's something for a lot of people out there that can fly in the face of how they think people get better at what they do and become more productive and greater contributors to the organization. If folks listened all this way, I think you just got your your one-on-one agenda and doing it in 15 minutes, I think that's gold in terms of tips and asking those four questions. Um, and also that, hey, this doesn't need to be on video. It could even be in a written format and you can mix it up and, and you're still getting the reflection. You're still getting the, you know, from the folks that you manage, but getting to review those as well. And what do you mean by, 
you know, they don't need attention. They need, uh, or they need attention, not feedback. Can you unpack that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, which, which I said, I, I struggled with this one kind of, and, and, and he has another great uh, book uh, he co-wrote. Uh, I can't remember the other author, but uh, nine lies they tell you at work. And so our feedback, our performance management systems, you know, so many of these things that, that are essential parts of what we do, right? Because we're determining compensation and we're determining a lot of things, but they're extremely unreliable in terms of, of feedback. And really the only reliable feedback I can give another human being is my experience of them. Nobody can argue with that. Here's what I felt when you gave that presentation. Or here's what I uh, do. I actually look forward to spending time with you and working with you. Right. And so, but we have so many systems kind of built around this idea of feedback. So I'm going to set that aside. So, well, of course, we're not saying that you don't give advice or you don't help people look at things a certain way. Right. But it's about the idea that what people really need and what helps them thrive is attention. Is somebody caring about their work? how it impacts them, the challenges and the celebrations that exist within that. And I will tell you that, that the research is so clear on this, David, so clear that when a manager gives predominantly negative feedback, corrective feedback, right, it is actually 30 times better than ignoring them totally, right? But when the manager focuses on positive feedback, it is 60 times more effective. There's a great, uh, when I first started doing this work, I found a, a, a book called Appreciative Inquiry, which if folks have uh, heard of that before, but it's that idea that, that through this, you're helping people focus on what's working, what they love, and how to do more of that. And inherently through that process of that positive attention, number one, it does neurological and nervous system it impacts their nervous system, meaning that, that when you come with criticism and negative feedback, people can't learn. They actually tend to shut down and it, after, it fires up their sympathetic nervous system. And that is their fight or flight system. And a vast majority of people, if you come with this feedback without trust and a foundation, then they're going to shut down and they're not actually going to hear what you're saying. They're probably going to get defensive versus the other side. When you come and I'm not saying praise, right? I'm saying attention. There might be praise within that attention, but it really is just that idea that you're giving that positive attention. You're caring about what's important to them. And you are demonstrating that by showing up every single week to talk to them about it. And you're using that data and information to guide their career development. Yeah. This is one of the benefits of me doing this podcast is I'm learning all these insights so hopefully others are taking this stuff away because I think this is this is gold. Is there anything else, Doug, that on this topic of of love and work that you think is is important to mention as we as we start to wind down the episode? Um, you know, like I said, obviously, if if you're if you're intrigued by this, my my first recommendation is read the book. Like I said, if you're like me and you nerd out on research, go read the research. There's there's a lot of great tidbits in there, but. It really is something that a personal experience can can transform the way people experience their work. So I know that my experience of this also was, well, I've got to get buy-in, right? I've got to get buy-in. And that is an important part of this process that, that because some of these concepts can kind of fly in the face of tradition and the way people typically think about it, that the effective way to get buy-in, in my experience, is by developing the champions. We have what we call an ambassador program, right? And so 
they were uh, champions of bright breaks. That was part of what they were doing. We're going around and inviting people in. And we weren't giving them extra money to do this. They just did because they loved the platform and they loved doing the work and they loved meditating and saw benefits. So they were trying to bring more employees in. But pick some teams. Really focus in on people that are champions, that are going to be open to these concepts and collect data demonstrate this by painting a picture of the changes in the improvements in the execution, whatever things you're targeting through doing this work. That that's what I've experienced and, and I have a background as in research, but you know, through the people side, our greatest way to communicate and influence people who are not necessarily on the people side, at least in my experience, is through data and information, not just stories. That's qualitative and it's a important part, but through quantitative data as well as to say we've been able to increase productivity this amount through doing this. And once I experienced that, once people saw the benefits, you reach your your middle adopters, right? The people that are kind of like, yeah, I'm interested, right? And then your middle adopters jump on and then they start to influence your late adopters. And God help the never adopters who are always going to be out there and they're not going to like any of the things that you do because that's just how they are. And so those might be the folks you question if they're the right fit. <laughs> yeah. Show the impact on the business, show how it is positively affecting the business with metrics. And that is your path to buy in, whether it's culture initiative, whether it's a wellness initiative, whether it's implementing strategies like love and work. I think that's really awesome advice and, and super applicable. So Doug, thank you so much for all the preparation that you've done in preparation for this episode. I think it, you know, it's, Doug and I went back and forth on several calls and emails. So this is um, hopefully well worth it to everyone that listened in. Uh, if anyone wants to connect with you, Doug, where could they they find you and reach you? Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on there quite a bit. So that's the easiest way. Uh, just Doug Zay on LinkedIn uh, and send me a message on there. And I'm, I'm happy to chat and happy to, uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've experienced this work in a way, David, where, where I truly and passionately believe that it, if people lean in, it will change the way people experience work. And I believe that, that our world is in desperate need of a way for people to relate to and engage in their work that allows them to bring the best of themselves and, and vice versa, allows the organization to bring its best to them. So anybody that is curious about applying this or digging into the greater detail, I'm wide open for a conversation. Okay. I recommend that folks listening in take Doug up on that offer. Doug, this was a super powerful and insightful conversation. Thank you so much. Grateful for you taking the time to do this. And thank you to everyone listening for uh, another episode of the Virtual Vibe podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, David.